Over a hill and under a misty mountain, deep within the unceded Musqueam territory of Vancouver, British Columbia, I'm Doug Vandalay with another episode of Comedy Zeitgeist. You can follow the show on Twitter at Comedy Zeitgeist and pester me at Doug Vandalay. Hello to everybody listening on CITR 101.9 here for the first 30 minutes of the show. Joseph Warren Stilwell, born March 19, 1883, was a United States Army general who served in the China-Burma-India theater during World War II. His caustic personality was reflected in the nickname Vinegar Joe. Distrust of his allies and a lack of resources meant Stilwell was continually forced to improvise. He famously differed as to strategy, ground troops versus air power, with his subordinate, Claire Cheneau, who had the ear of Generalissimo Chiang Kai-shek. General George Marshall, the Army Chief of Staff, acknowledged he had given Stilwell one of the most difficult assignments of any theater commander. How's it going, Joe? Oh, great. <laughs> I'm really, I'm, I'm glad you... <laughs> uh that's uh i haven't been asked that about i get that a lot like there is always the occasional history buff that's like oh hey are you related to vinegar joe Stillwell?" and i'm like no i don't think so but uh well he's just the top google result yeah he is and uh why i have like a google alert for my own name because i'm a narcissist and uh and definitely that that occasionally comes up like whenever they dedicate something to him or whenever there's a piece about him it kind of just it, it always comes up there's him and then there's a guy involved in financial stuff oh i whose saw name that comes too. up whenever there's like a selling whenever they sell or buy something and i guess like because they have to keep it all as a matter of public record so his name comes up every time it's like joseph stillwell of kingsway financial or something like that so yeah i've been getting recently a lot of hits for cave goblins uh with the oh. new hit anime goblin slayer <laughs> Have you heard about this one? No, I haven't heard about Goblin Slayer. Uh, the, it's Crunchyroll has had to change their terms of service in the last week. Uh, so this will be last week, if you're listening now, since this show came out because it's so violent and gory. Is this the one where they like chop up women and stuff like that? Yeah, it's like or... goblins raping and killing women in a cave. Oh my god, are you serious? Yeah, and so I'm getting some, some fun uh, press from that. Yeah, okay, wait, because I l- watched a YouTube video where this guy was talking about criti- like criticism and how like like how people sort of are like, oh, I can't remember. There was some criticism thing, and he, he, I, he, I think he was mentioning that show. It was uh, Dan Olson, Foldable Human, and he was like, oh, he was basically saying, like, you can't deflect criticism of a show by saying, like, well, the, the author just, like, presents the world as it is because the author is the creator of the world and i think he was he he called it something else but he was definitely name checking that show now that i think of it so so what's the takeaway that from that that it's that like well if a, if you write something and it's full of like horrible misogynistic things that doesn't just because like those things exist in the real world and there are worlds where that stuff happens it doesn't absolve you of like the way you present it doesn't absolve you of, of like you presenting that material as somehow oh that's just the way the world is i guess i can't remember now i watch these videos on youtube and they're all like really smart and then i try and repeat them out loud and they just I, I, they don't make any sense so in all seriousness i'm joined today by joseph stillwell vancouver screen and comic writer is that right yeah that's pretty much right uh your main plug on twitter is as the writer for blue skies comic yeah, that's my webcomic. It's um, it's I I pitch it as a post post apocalyptic adventure. Uh, it's basically in the world after uh the 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 ice caps have melted, and the uh, the the earth is now a vast ocean just peppered by islands, and it's about people who fly between these islands, kind of like exploring and discovering. 
uh, it's in no way like scientifically accurate, but I just, I wanted to, I had an idea for like a show that was sort of an action adventure kind of thing, like Indiana Jones or uh, Firefly, but sort of in a less of a grim setting, I guess. But I wanted to keep that adventure spirit. So it was like, well, islands, planes, that's always kind of a good way to go. And I think like, that's how I came up with the, the basic idea. And I was like, well, how can I make that happen? And it was just, oh, okay, well, I'll make this world where uh, the ice caps have melted, but somehow the planet isn't like a raging ball of fire and we can still breathe the air and everything. And people fly from planet, uh, from island to island in these planes because when they were when the when the ice caps were rising they were trying to build rockets to get them off the planet and they didn't they didn't succeed but they built like an engine that requires is a green engine that basically requires almost no fuel but can take you long distances and that's what they fly around in these planes so yeah kind of makes me think of uh laputa castle in the sky to reference another anime in the first five uh, minutes yes of the- i i haven't watched that one i love i've i'm i was a big studio ghibli fan as like a teenager like right when Princess Mononoke and Spirited Away came out, that was sort of my Ghibli era. I know everyone has their own, but I haven't seen Castle in the Sky. Could be um, some some good uh, reference material for your comic. Yeah, well, and Porco Rosso was definitely a big influence, especially on the way Hugh Hugh Henderson, the artist, the way he draws it. Like we talked about that film a lot, and a lot of not only the themes, but a lot of just the visuals and the visual dynamic of it. A sort of like really because part of it was like it's called blue skies over nine isles because it's supposed to sort of be rather than post-apocalyptic and be very negative it's sort of a more of a positive uplifting thing even in the face of uh you know complete breakdown of society and it's about people rebuilding after a big disaster or trauma or whatever um and that's sort of uh that's sort of like part of it was like porco rosso is is this cynical guy who's been turned into a pig but all around him is this beauty and this majesty of this world where people fly around and stuff, even though there's violence and, you know, dark stuff, it's still very beautiful and scenic and big blue open skies with lots of clouds was kind of a visual we kept bringing ourselves back to. How long has that comic been running for? Uh, April 2015, so just over th- three years now. Um, we've been managing to release a page every two weeks, which ends up being about about 24... So it's usually it's two to three pages a month. So that ends up being about a 20 to 24 page issue per year right now. So that's what we're on. So we are on we're just finishing up issue three of the first arc. And then we'll we're next year. We'll kind of release issue four. Um, we both have full time jobs. So it's it's uh, it's kind of a, a especially for the for Hugh, the artist. For me, it's not quite as intense. But for him, it's like a lot of his spare time is just taken up drawing because he 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 draws the comic, he inks the comic, he colors the comic, and he he uh, you know f- formats it himself. So I write the scripts and I kind of handle most of the website stuff, which is why the website is a little janky. It, it's kind of nostalgic to what I would see as maybe the the golden or even uh, maybe silver age of web comics back when uh, uh, the guy who made uh, <laughs> you know that point and click one that has the. Ma- massive that that true homestuck. homestuck what was the one before that detective something detective I, I, yeah i know what you're talking about it's just detective adventures or something like that it's amazing though that one i, I have still never gotten into that like I it just, takes a long time well that's the thing because i heard about homestuck and i was like i'm like just the mass of it and i was like i'm never i'm never gonna get into that because i will just never come out and i'll never finish it and um yeah, but I, I think I started reading those detective adventures like years ago, but I never really finished them. 
it starts to get pretty crazy after a time. I read that in my first attempted college degree, which was not the best idea. Ooh. First attempted, maybe there's a correlation there. So well, they... Some other comics of that time, that time period, I'd say uh, Dinosaur Comics, still running yep. by Ryan... No- Does he live in Vancouver? Ryan North, I don't know. He's ter- he's in ter- he he was in Toronto. I think he's sort of like Toronto, L.A. now. Well, he's a big shot now. He yeah. makes Squirrel Girl. Yeah, he writes Squirrel Girl, and he's got a book out now about time travel, like a, a funny book about time travel. I think it's got some so. actual science in there. <clears throat> yeah, it, it might. I don't it's know. It's a, t- a time traveler's guide to everything, basically. Like if you were to time travel back to medieval times. I always get Ryan North and Ryan Ferrier confused. Or fa- I don't know if it's Ferrier or Ferrier. He's also a com, a, a, like kind of a funny comics writer, but he writes a comic. It's called Dave, where the Dave is a four, and it's about the first robotic American president. Um, so it's set slightly in the future, and so it's like the about the first robot to become president of the United States, and they're both kind of that comedic tone. So I always get the two of them confused a little bit, and I think they're actually buddies too. So that's that's always that doesn't help to me. No. First robot president of America, always for me, will be J.K. Simmons in Red Alert 3. Actually, oh, I never thought of that. Oh, I guess you're right. They beat them to the punch. But this is like a robot that looks like a robot. And they're not yep. secret like J.K. Simmons. I actually just, what did I just watch? Oh, I just watched Counterpart with J.K. Simmons. I haven't seen and, that. Uh, it's about a guy who basically is like a bureaucrat in a spy agency, just a low-level guy who basically just handles like forms and stuff for like a government agency and then he finds out that there's one there's an alternate universe that that their universe is in a cold war with and the version of him in the alternate universe is like the like the jack ryan or the the james bond of the universe kind of thing he's like a super spy how did i miss this i don't i think it's a stars show and it's oh it's a tv show yeah it's a tv show and uh it's it kind of was released under the radar it's written by the guy who wrote the jungle book movie and it was—it's a stars show, so I don't—I don't know how if it actually ever played on Canadian TV. I watched it through Crave or something. So I don't yeah. think I've ever watched Canadian TV. Oh, no. I moved here way after. Actually, well, no, I've it's... watched hockey. Oh, yeah, you, you haven't until recently. You haven't missed a lot. Mm-hmm. Like uh, that was kind of the thing growing up was like uh, mostly the only time you watched CBC as a kid was when they played Simpsons reruns. Yeah. Or uh, Royal Canadian Air Farce. I grew up watching that, which is like our sketch like the only sketch comedy show uh that's like fully canadian and uh yeah that one there it's like just four uh actors and i do, i don't know if there was they probably had a writing team too but it was a lot of uh a lot of really canadian jokes i think that's where or in the red green show oh we've got his that. book next to the toilet oh there you go okay have yeah. you seen his tv show uh i actually haven't Oh, okay. But I should watch it because I'm really into woodworkers. and. Yeah, well, it's funny because he actually, that, I still don't know, is that his, that's not his real name, is it? I don't know. Okay, well, anyway. Maybe his real name is Gruel. It's like Red Gruel? Gruel, like the uh, gr- uh, Red Green Guild of Ravnica. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That might be. It's kind sense. of a flat joke. I, get that. I don't know. I, I play Magic the Gathering. I guess if it was like uh, more relevant, I've been playing a lot of MTG Arena. Oh, anyway. yeah. I mean, unless you play too, we can move on from that. I, I play Magic the Gathering. Like I do, I've, I've cut back a lot recently because I spent too much money on cards. Way too much oh, money I've cut on way cards. in oh. recently. Ah, uh, yeah. yeah. That's always like the thing. It's never like either you're in or you're out. And like sometimes you just get pulled back in. I guess you're playing online though, right? I went to the Guilds of Radnica pre-release two weeks ago. Mm. Mm. 
you're pre-releasing. That's a, that's the sign of a junkie. Yeah. Magic the Gathering. I, I've done it in the past. I've been playing on and off since 2002. I, I, uh, yeah, I, I started playing in junior high, so that would have been 97, 98. And then I played up till about, I graduated high school. So 2003, and then I got out of it for a long time, and I would just buy the occasional pack of cards for nostalgia. And then when I started working at the animation studio, the first animation studio I worked for, um, there were a bunch of guys that played there, and I started playing with them again, and I got way back into it, especially the Commander format. Yeah. But um, uh, I actually wrote a sketch about when Magic the Gathering, like it was basically like uh, Requiem for a Dream, but with Magic the Gathering. So one of the characters like gets gets in deep and, and buys all these cards and gets all this debt and then has to pay it off by by cosplaying and that's like the Jennifer Connelly storyline. Right. And then the other guy keeps paper cutting his hands on the cards while he plays. So that's like the the Marlon Wayans storyline yeah. kind of thing. And then it all just, it it just ends. It's sort of like it even had the the you know how the mom maybe collecting baseball cards. I and... didn't get to that. That was like the sketch was already like five six pages by the time I got through all that stuff. But I had the, like, instead of, like, winter, spring, summer, I had, like, uh, untap phase, draw phase, and main phase as, like, the different, like, parts. And it sort of, it was just, it, it's funny because it's based on, we used to joke that, like, there was, like, sort of a Pavlovian response to, like, opening a booster pack. Like, you get, like, there's, like, the smell and, like, the, the sound of the foil opening kind of gets yeah. that, like, so you could do that, like, rhythm editing with the magic cards. And that was where the idea came from. Oh yeah, uh, the thing they do with the uh... yeah with the when they inject, it's sort of like that the the needle and then the flame and then the and then the eye, the uh, the the pupil like expanding and that was like the rhythm that was the famous thing that sort of brought rhythm rhythm editing into the mainstream was Requiem for a Dream. I went to film school, in case you can't tell. I did too, but I but you went to Vancouver Film School and I mm. went to mm. Curtin University of New Technology. If Ooh. you want to uh, decode that acronym. Curtin? University of New Technology. Wow. Wow. Uh, wow. Did they not? They did, dropped the new they in. They dropped the technology. It's Curtin University of Technology. It's just Curtin. Oh, that's right, because people kept complaining that it was really technologically behind. Vancouver Film School was not. I, I, I learned. A, I, don't wanna, I don't want you to get, get me wrong. I learned a lot at Vancouver Film School, but uh, the main thing is they have some really good st- like film gear, but they don't let you use it until you're in the final term. And then it's all about like a chit system. So every student has a chit and the more chits you have, the more equipment you can get for your final project. So it, it becomes like a, a popularity contest. And like, I, I'm not good at that stuff. So yeah, I never really used any of their fancy equipment, but the stuff they give like, like early, like first termers isn't, isn't fancy. It's like basically like a documentary style, like Sony camera with a zoom lens and then like a basic like sound recorder and they're just basically like release you into like a five day shoot for your first term. So it's it's a little better. Like they have like, you know, flat screen TVs and they have editing bays and stuff, but it's not it's it's not like top of the line stuff either. So it's crazy how far film school has even come. I, I was talking to Talia about this yesterday. My first year of film school was in 2008 and we were still using tapes. Oh, wow. Yeah. I think the we didn't we weren't using tapes. I have heard I had a friend who went to SAIT, uh, Southern Alberta Institute of Technology in Calgary, and they were they were still using uh, CD recording like like cameras that recorded onto CDs and DVDs. Then I don't think I've ever even seen that. They're usually like it's usually like a cartridge with a CD inside of it, 
Like a P2 so, card? Yeah, I guess. I don't know what it's called. It's it's just like a regular CD, but it's got a built-in cartridge that you pop into the machine and everything. And, and then it's got like a flap that opens like a floppy disk. That might be. I'm not a, yeah, I'm not a technical guy. Um, and then, and then, and then, but that was a specifically a broadcast program too at SAIT. It's not really like, they're not teaching you to make a film. They're teaching you to be like a journalist or a, you know, like a TV presenter and stuff like that. Yeah, Vancouver Film School was good. It's definitely, I think they, the, they, they put a lot of money into promotion. So they have a very strong like presence and basically anyone who can afford to pay gets in is basically how it works. It's more of a networking gig that place. it is. The main thing was the teacher. A lot of they get a lot of teachers out of like that are basically people who who are taking breaks from the industry. So if you get in at the right time, you can actually meet a lot of teachers that are have actually worked in the industry and can tell you what it's actually like. But I think the big problem, and it's not a huge problem if you already are familiar with it, but um, they don't really understand like new media at all. Like they're just they're just starting to get like. TAs that have done web videos and stuff like that. So the school's curriculum, especially producing, is still very focused on, oh, here's how you get your film into a film festival, which is really only good if you want to be um, like making feature films, feature films for like sort of a, a film, indie, an indie film audience. Like they really teach you how to get the festival circuit and all that stuff and what a grind it is and how to get funding, like write a grant to telefilm or whatever. Here's how you approach investors and the producing side. And then the directing side is very much like you watch, you know, like David Lynch and a lot of auteurs and stuff like that. And it's really focused on that kind of model, which is um, not bad. But for me, like I went in wanting to make web videos and do TV and that kind of stuff. And they really, their curriculum is not focused on that at all because all of their, all of their teachers like were they're they, they're like at the end of their careers now. So <clears throat> they worked like 20 years ago in the industry. So they really know this film, this, this, uh, this like get your film into festivals model. So that's, and that was in 2011 when I graduated. So, or 2012. So it might've changed a bit, but that's kind of where it's at right now. So. Oh, but you got a job in the industry. Well, I did eventually. eventually. I started PA. I graduated from film school in 2012, and I basically got piecemeal work. Like I went around. I knew a few people, so they got me a few day gigs, like ading and stuff. But a lot of that stuff, because it's indie, like they just they there are everybody's cranky and they're you know like they're on a tight budget. So if you make a mistake, like you may not even mean to, and then you'll make a mistake, and then you know a producer who doesn't know you from like the the eight other people on set will just be like, no, get rid of them and get someone else. So I had been to film school and the other thing too is VFS students are kind of have now garnered a reputation as coming onto set and being brats that don't like that don't listen and don't and sort of question things even if they're just a PA or something like that. They'll like question the director's choices or something because they've been to film school and they've sort of been filled with all this training. So people see them as sort of these brats that don't respect the film industry and sort of want to make art and stuff like that. So there's kind of a stigma. I don't know. I don't know if I ever actually got that, but eventually, what happened was I would do day sh day gigs and day calls as a PA or like an extra sound man or whatever, like on indie stuff. And then eventually, people start hiring you. You know, someone gets in on a bigger film set. So I PA'd from I want to say 2012 to 2014, uh, just on sets. I worked on like shows like Falling Skies. I worked on a couple of movies that shot here, stuff like that. And uh, it was it was. Uh, 
It's not fun. It's it's a 14-hour to 15-hour day usually. They expect you to stand most of the day. And there are people who, if they catch you sitting, they won't call you back. And then you're basically day calling. So you're basically getting, oh, here, we need an, we need five extra PAs than normal on a day. So that's how you get your first gigs. And then like if they like you enough, they'll be like, oh, come back all next beat week. You can be one of our mainstays. And then eventually you're supposed to get to the point where you're getting show calls where you just you just get called at the first thing and you're the PA on the show through the whole thing. But I was still in that day call period and it was just basically when you're working, you're exhausted because you're working 15 hour days. And then when you're not working, you're worried about where your next gig is going to come. So you're just texting people all day then for the next two or three days, like panicking, like, when, oh God, when is my next work going to come? So it was not very relaxing. And I was living with my girlfriend, who's now my wife. And it just got to a point where it was like, I can't do this anymore. I've seen someone have a heart attack on set. Uh, I've worked, I worked a 22 hour day once on a pilot and that was pretty much it. So I started looking and that eventually got me to an office job, basically working the front desk at an animation studio. And that's how I got to my current job, which is a production coordinator at an animation studio. Well, my day job. Can you talk about that at all? Yeah. I, so I started at the front desk. Basically, I was a, a studio PA and your job is basically to like make sure the bathrooms are stocked with toilet paper, make sure there's coffee in the coffee machine. If people have packages, you send them a message saying their package is there. You know, you go pick up stuff to like whether if, if they have new chairs come in, you go pick them up with a U-Haul, that kind of thing. And then someone eventually like one of the people in production was like, hey, you'd be a pretty good uh, production coordinator. So I started doing a, I, I went into being a PA for a show and that's basically, um, production in, in, uh, animation is like, well, that's producer, like the producer is at the top and then below them is the production manager and then the coordinators and, and then PAs usually are assistants to the coordinators. And basically what we're just doing is making sure the show comes in on time and on budget. So, uh, my day now as a coordinator, I, I work for the, I, I'm mostly just checking in with animators being like, Hey, you know, you're a little behind on your workload. This is how many shots you should have done. This is where you're at. Or when notes come in from a client or from a director, I'm the one that puts them into our software that sort of tracks everything and gets them to the animator and stuff like that. That's basically my day job. I, I'm basically working for the producer as like a coordinator. A lot of, a lot of just like checking in making sure everything's working like being the glue that connects things communicating between departments making sure like when something changes in animation that the lighters know so they can they can change their lighting rigs so it doesn't you know mess up or look stupid or whatever have you worked on any uh, notable titles though dino trucks i worked on the veggie tales in the house show which is the one on netflix that's pretty huge uh it's amazingly huge uh, i'm glad you guys have heard of veggie tales because some people you either veggie tales you either people don't know what it is or people know exactly what it is yeah like the christian show right yeah and it's it's interesting because i i grew up around that i'm from rural alberta so that stuff was always there because there's a lot of really hardcore christians in in rural alberta I'd never really like paid attention to it because my family isn't very religious. So I didn't know when I went onto the show that what they'd done, VeggieTales was one of the first 3D animated uh, shows ever. And at the time, a lot of the stuff they ma they'd made the characters do was because they couldn't do certain things. Like they couldn't really animate eyebrows. 
at the time. So instead, they just made the characters have sort of like Mr. Potato Head eyes that bulged out of their bodies. And then the, the tops of their eyes would basically move like an eyebrow would. And then the reason the characters don't have hands is because it was too hard to, to animate realistic like hands that looked that didn't look creepy. So they basically just gave the characters no hands. And that was the reason why. So a lot of it was just like creative problem solving. And now the technology has gone so far that when they made this new show for Netflix, it was called it was originally called Veggie Tales in the House because they like live in a house like a, a, like it, they're normal sized veggies living in a giant human house. But they like, so they live. Do humans live there too? Like Tom well, and Jerry scenario? No, that's the weird thing is like the house is clearly empty, but there's furniture in just like random places and they build their like their towns like at the foot of the couch and then like the rich people live on the top of the couch or like, like then, and then there's a city that's over somewhere else. And then a couple of like, like some of the characters live on top of the fridge and they're just like wandering around this house. Like sometimes there's like, you know, there's like a train that goes all through the house that they can ride and stuff like that. Like it, there's no actual logic to it. It's just insane. And then they changed it to Veggie Tales in the city in season two or three when they retooled the show. And the city is just like another grouping of buildings in a different part of this house where there's no humans. So I don't know if it's like a cars situation, <laughs> you know, like the theory that the cars and Disney's cars are like, after the atomic bomb or the hydrogen bomb has gone off and killed all the people and then their spirits have like animated the cars to life i assume that's what's going on in this veggie tales incarnation there's a stephen king short story that's one of the wackier ones i think it's in is it room 1407 or something 1402 1402 i knew i'd get that one wrong i think i've got that one wrong on this podcast yeah you, you got it wrong on the the the, the podcast versus podcast episode because i just listened to that and those guys love stephen king <laughs> They right. love Stephen King so much. Oh, we talked about Stephen King on my episode of their podcast. Oh, that's well. what it was. Sorry, I'm getting them. I list. I just listened to them all. Just okay, recently, good. So. so I'm off the hook. It didn't happen twice on my podcast. I get it wrong once per podcast. I can get okay. There we go. Fourteen oh two wrong. I only and I only know that one because they corrected you on it. <laughs> Maybe that's going to be a, a running thing for me. There's a story in that that is one of the more wacky ones where the cars have taken over. And they are enslaving people and making them pump gas for them. Oh, my God. For real? <laughs> That's pretty much the whole crux of the story. Wow. It's just this big line of cars at the gas station. Wow. And, and people are dying just pumping gas and they get big calluses on their hands. And I always what? thought that was the transition between our world and cars. That actually makes sense. That's really that 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 makes a lot of sense. Because they can't pump the gas themselves. I didn't I didn't think Stephen King went like that high concept. Like that just seemed was you this like read his, his books of short stories, he just writes anything he thinks of. Some was that of like the absolute, cocaine years? Is that what's going maybe. on there? Oh. Well, it'd be either be the cocaine years or the oxy years. Oh, he did oxy too? Have you read Dreamcatcher? Yes, I have. Yeah. Dreamcatcher no, no, I've is, seen the movie. Yeah, which know. is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I just love Thomas Jane in anything. Oh man. Is and, and uh what's the guy isn't Damien Lewis in that too? Is that Homeland? Yeah, the Dame. The I just call him Homeland. 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 <laughs> I actually know Homeland him from, putting on the weird English Band accent. Of, Band of Brothers, because he's like one of the main characters. That's in on Band my list of, of things to watch. Is that, uh, is that about Vinegar Joe? That no, series? Vinegar Joe's not in it. Unfortunately, unfortunately, yeah. that's the uh, the Tom Tom Hanks vehicle, right? Yeah, he pro he executive produced. He just it. loves World War Two. He also executive produced Big Love, which is one of my probably my favorite HBO series, which is about Mormon Mormon polygamists. And uh, Bill Paxton plays the, the the patriarch of the these Mormon polygamists. 
I used to watch the last 10 minutes of that before Lost every week. Oh, man. Oh, so you, you get like, so that, because that show came out in 2006. When did Lost come out? Around the same time, I think. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. But that's an HBO show. Uh, in Australia, it was on just oh, Channel 7. okay. You know? Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's one of my favorite You can't legally shows. watch HBO in Australia. Really? We have the, maybe you can now, but Australia has the highest concentration of media pirates on the planet, and it's because they we don't have an option. The only way you can watch Game of Thrones in Australia is with a cable subscription week by week. Oh, wow. So... Oh, with the movie add-on, oh, yeah. yeah. So it's 40 bucks a month for the basic, and then an extra 10 bucks just for the movie add-on channel. Well, that's channels. here. It's, so you pay for your basic cable in Canada, which is something obscene. Like, I think the basic, basic cable is like 60 to 80 bucks a month. And then HBO, just to subscribe to HBO, and, and I think you get like a couple of movie channels with it, but nobody watches those movie channels. That's like 20 MCM. bucks a month. Yeah, it's like they're called, no, they're just called like MGM, the movie sorry. channel. Yeah. It's like the movie channel one, the movie channel two, and the movie channel three. And they just play like movies that have just come out of theaters, but aren't on, on, on DVD yet, basically. Right. Where were we? That was, that was a real long, nice tangent there. That was a super tangent. We went from, I think, VeggieTales to... Oh, yeah. I just wanted to say about Dreamcatcher. Oh, Dreamcatcher. So it. it. So It is famously his most coked up book. Oh, really? Okay. Which is, it's an amazing read. It's just some wacky shit happens in. I'm sure you know about the scene. Were you guys, isn't there like a, a child orgy or something like that? Yeah, well, it's called a chud. A churd? Chud. It's my accent, like chud, but pronounced differently. Wait, I the think. scene is called a chud? Like, yeah, it's what they do. It's like this weird psycho sorcery shit. Uh, oh my. About, it's a ritual. The, the girl initiates it, at least, as a, as a small salve to it. Right, because there's only one people, girl, right? People say it's a gang rape. Oh it's not a, it's, a, it's a consensual statutory gang rape. Wow. Yeah. Now, Stephen King has not, some... Not, not, to, not to defend the scene, but any, anyways, so that's his most coked up book. And then Dreamcatcher is basically it on Oxy, because it's set in Derry. Oh, okay. And the kids were around at the same time. There are other kids from the same school. Well, because the only Stephen King books I've actually finished are the Dark Tower series. The, I read oh, so you've read, all, you've read all the Stephen King books. And that's books. the thing. It's like they're all connected to all of his other books, right? Yeah. Like Stephen King was doing the Marvel Cinematic Universe before the Marvel Cinematic Universe existed, basically. That, that felt like the most important books I've ever read. Those books are crazy. Like I look back at them now and I was at the time I was like, I was like 1920 reading those books. I was like, this is so, oh my God, oh my God. And now I look back at some of it and I'm just like, what the fuck was that? What it's the pretty fuck wacky. Was going on? But it took him like 40 years or something writing it. Yeah, because he well he wrote the first 3 before his accident. He wrote um uh or maybe it was the first 4. He wrote the first half of the series before he got in the accident. And then he you wrote You can just the, call it Dreamcatcher. Huh. <laughs> Is that what? No, I don't yeah, know. What is Dreamcatcher? How do I not know about the Stephen King accident? Call he myself got, a Stephen well, King fan. That's that's where he got the idea for Misery from. Right. Was he was he was what because he was walking. He we used to go for walks when he got writer's block. Yeah, no spoilers for Talia and Dark Tower, but that ties heavily into the series. Oh, really? Stephen okay. King. Have you finished it? Yeah, I finished yeah. it. Yeah. His walks. Does it? I haven't. I, I haven't read, read it last year since I was twenty. I'm thirty three now. Right. So, um, but yeah, so he got hit by a car, and it like broke both his legs or what? Like it it messed him up, and he was like he didn't write for a long time. 
but someone actually found him and like nur- and did nurse him back to health just one of his neighbors but he just that was where he got the idea for misery was he was like holy shit like some like maniac could have just uh could just could have just found me and then so while he was recovering he actually got a letter from a fan who was like i w- like I, I love your Dark Tower series. I need you to finish them. And she wrote him like a whole schwack load of these letters and it freaked him out. And those two things were basically how he came up with misery was like he re- he both realized that like if, if a crazy person had found him when he was messed up like that, they could have done anything to him. And then he combined it with this super fan who was just so obsessed with his books and was so afraid that he'd never finish the Dark Tower series. That's amazing. Yeah. It's, it's like the final piece of the puzzle. Yeah. But it's tied into everything. They, there's big references in, in there to, uh, and I'm going to get this number wrong, Stephen King and Numbers, the 1622, no, something 2263. Oh, I don't, yeah. see 112263. Which yeah, is what? The Kennedy assassination. Oh, the Kennedy assassination. So he's got a book about that that's supposed to be, uh, a lot of people say is his best book. The TV show I really liked. People didn't seem to like it with James Franco. I did not see it. I didn't, I don't, I'm just not a Stephen King fan. I've tried many times. Oh, I'm, he's I'm just pretty not diehard. my favorite author. He's just not one of my favorite authors. But, but yeah, I read those Dark Tower books and I remember the one, the things I always remember are like Stephen King's weird sex things. Like he has all these weird things he writes about sex. Like and he doesn't like, get what it is. Like, I don't know. Yeah, a little yeah. bit. He's like, like an alien. Like, and then, then. like, yeah, the way he talks about it, like there's one in one of the Dark Tower books, like Roland has sex with like this random maid and they, they come at the same time. And he's like, and he like writes this whole thing about how uh, only fools think that people coming at the same time is like something special. And it's actually just like a random coincidence or something like that. And it's just like super like, like he's like, no, damn it. If you come at the same time, it's not special. You're not in love. That's it. Just that's the way it comes across. It's totally it's normal, like, guys. <laughs> I come in a very reasonable amount of time. <laughs> I can please well, my wife, damn it. Look, the guy writes 2,000 words a day. Yeah, that's insane. I, yeah. I write maybe 10. I, that's finished edited words. Mm, mm. Speak, speaking of uh, fantasy universes, yeah. uh, you've guessed it a couple of times on DMs of Vancouver. Yes, I have. Do you find that running campaigns uh, helps your writing? I think it did at first. I think what what really it helped me was knowing the difference between uh, world building and storytelling, because in D and D, what you're really what you really should be doing as a dungeon master, in my opinion, is making a world that your players can can have adventures in and centering them as the story and letting them sort of drive the story by making their decisions. And so a lot of what you're doing is just world building. And I think when I first started writing, I used to, because I DM so much, my world building muscle was very well developed, but I wasn't necessarily good at actual storytelling. And that was something that film school really helped me with. But definitely, it's definitely taught me a lot about not only writing, but collaborating with other people, because that's like a big part of D&D is you've got to you've got to really let the players drive the story and bring their ideas to it. So I and I've always been a person who as a writer and creative, like I really like to like bounce ideas off other people and, and collaborate, whether it's like making a comic book or like having a bunch of other writers, if you're writing like a TV show or like even just getting someone's notes on my scripts, that really helps a lot. Like I just, I find like the longer I am in isolation with my writing, the more I sort of go crazy and start to think, oh, I'm not a good writer. This sucks. Like I'm, st- I stare at it for so long that it loses all meaning if you know what I'm saying. So I think like 
D and D really taught me the, the 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 value of collaboration and sort of like improv in a way and going with an idea and sort of letting letting things flow naturally instead of like expecting everything to be hey, this is, this is what I've planned, so this is what we have to do. I'm really glad you said all that because I, I recorded an episode with them on Saturday. It'll be coming yeah, out right. on uh, November 12th if you're listening to this, and it's all about world building. Nice. I'm and excited for that one. You echoed a lot of my, my sentiment, which is good. And check that podcast out as well if you, if you don't already. Uh, Jesse and Sean are great hosts. Yeah, Jesse and Sean are really nice. Actually, I, um, I didn't, I was introduced to them by a mutual friend and he was like, oh, this guy DMs, so you should get him on the show. And I had, Sean and I had worked at the same studio, like he's a developer, but I hadn't known Jesse before that. And now we actually hang out quite a bit. Um, I'm friends with his wife, Haley, who's a really amazing artist too. And it was just really sort of this fortunate, like just found a really great friend making that podcast. And that's kind of really cool. Another cool thing about doing all these podcasts is you meet all these great new people who are like into making things and doing stuff. And that's awesome. Yeah. And doing the same things you do. And then, you know, it's, it's one of the only scenarios where before I meet someone, I can just dig into everything about them. And (laughs) it's not creepy this time. You dug into some stuff about me? Uh, not really. I did find this quote that I skipped past that I liked of yours. Oh, Uh, from, from Twitter or from somewhere else? It's somewhere deep. Uh, in the summer of 2014, I applied for a job at a very special place full of very special people, dot, 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 McDonald's, but they turned me down. So I became a facilities PA at Bardell Entertainment. I thought that was a, a good little summary of... I, I skipped by that because you basically on this... Uh, did I? That's right. Mm, yeah. 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 I don't even remember writing that. Where did you find that? Uh, you know, I should start uh, putting in references in this shit because people ask oh, you me just, that and I don't you know. You just copy pasted it into a Word doc and now you don't know where it's from. Word doc? What year is it? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> this is a Google doc. Thank you very oh, much. Oh, right. A Google doc. Okay. I call them... I'm old. So it's like my... My mother calls all video game systems Nintendo. Yeah, I haven't and, uh, used Microsoft Word since two thousand and seven. I still use it because um, yeah. I pay for the, it. <laughs> no, the templates because Google Google Docs don't have like uh, for comics writing. I have a very specific template that I use. Right. Um, it's actually Fred Van Lenty. He's another comics writer. He made it. And when I found it, I was just like, "This is perfect. This is so like because I just I'm very meticulous about. I'm not." I'm not insistent on what I put in, but I'm very meticulous about not just giving the artist like, okay, in panel one, they do this in panel two, they do this. Here's a dialogue. Like I, I do call shots quite a bit. Cause I do ha- I've been to film school. So I, I, I say that a lot. I don't normally talk about how much I went to film school, but um, it's relevant. It is relevant. So I, I am a bit more meticulous and this script sort of has everything very well laid out. Like it has like a different text size and, and, and font and format for, uh, directions and then dialogue and then notes and links and stuff and and like it even has a a box for uh, references that you want to give to your artists and stuff like that so it's probably one of the best tools so that's that's one of the main reasons I still use word well that's cool I'm just too scared of not saving and losing backups oh my god that's that's always the concern right I think I think word has an autosave feature now I don't know how good it is but I also well, I've been out of it for over a decade, so I can't really. Yeah, at talk this point, you it. might as well just use a Google. Doc. Some of my weaker I feel questions. like I should be funnier. Like I'm. Like, no, well, that's the thing about this podcast. It's not a comedy podcast. Right. It's, it's about, about comedy. comedy yeah. yeah it's nice to not because, like, I, again, when I came out of film school, I thought I'd be a drama guy, but then I, I met Pierce and a couple other friends, and they were doing comedy, and they just seemed to be having a lot more fun doing mm. it than like a lot of the drama. Like I got on a lot of sets for dramas and serious stuff. And it always felt like everyone had to like the tone always became like this, like 
serious tone and not that that's not good but it always felt sort of like self-inflicted but then i'd go on like comedy sets and everyone would be having fun and everyone would be joking around and i was just like you know what i think i should do that instead so that's kind of how i transitioned into into comedy so but uh, there's always this pressure for me of like is there enough jokes in it are there enough jokes in it like does this scene have enough jokes to count as comedy and uh, i'll often like even my first drafts are usually way too serious and they have more like not a lot of gags in them and not that you have to do gags all the time, but they sometimes I'll be like, Oh, this whole scene is just like, it's not really funny. It's just awkward. So then I'd have to rewrite it. And there's just a lot of pressure in my mind to constantly be like popping off jokes, which is why I, I joke so much on Twitter because I feel like I can practice and get all my dumb and bad jokes out there. You're a pretty prolific Twitter. Oh, wow. Sometimes I feel like I don't tweet enough. (laughs) I feel like that a lot. I'll tweet. I'm, I'm getting better. I, I tweeted a, a long nib. You can say that on my Twitter. Oh, nice. Okay, yeah. I think you like that one. I probably did. I, yeah. I, that's, I, I'm fi- I, finally developing a little bit of a Twitter crowd between uh, Eric and Piers and, and you. Yeah. I honestly, like, I was... Self-podcast so uh, versus podcast, Eric, yeah. Eric uh, and Piers. Shout out to those mm. guys. Pier- Piers and I met in film school, so... Cool. Um... Yeah. No, Twitter is Twitter's a um Twitter's tricky because you can entirely do too much of it. I got to a point where I deleted the app off my phone for several months because I would just wake up, check Twitter, be walking around the house getting ready for work, checking Twitter. At work, whenever my computer was like thinking or processing something, I'd like check Twitter. And I just got to the point where I was like, this is like this is not good for me. I need to like set limits. So I took the app off my phone for a couple months and now I've brought it back on, but there and there are a lot of people who even talk about how like why are they even on this website anymore? I I pulled myself back a bit recently. I mean, tw- Twitter's a good salva. It's the only one I use anymore. Mm. I I can't do Facebook, Instagram. It just gets away from oh, me. Facebook. I I what I do is sometimes I'll post my jokes to Facebook too, and no matter to see how if they land with the boomer crowd, it is as a joke. Well, the thing is, no matter how obvious it is as a joke on Facebook, there's always two or three people who respond completely seriously. Like I, I did my tweet about like, oh, if there are still i, if if iPads evolved from iPhones, how come there's still iPhones around? And like, I got two or three people like trying to actually explain why, and then I got a couple people like bitching about Apple because like whenever you mention Apple products, there's always someone who has to tell you why Apple is bad, and then there's always someone who has to. Come why is Apple bad? I don't know. <laughs> I'm fine with Apple. Everything. <laughs> no, I, have I, d- is I don't Apple. like it. I was and, just. Uh... Uh... I don't, I get why people don't like it. I, my, I, I was given a Mac computer as a present when I broke my old machine. It's a good reward. I, well, it was like, it was like my birthday and I was like, just like everybody just get me a new computer, like my whole family. And they, my, my father was like super into Macs at the time. So he got me like a, 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 a MacBook. And then I was just, I had the MacBook for like three years. And then it was like, well, now I have this MacBook and this iPhone there's no point in me leaving now i'm they got me that i'm in the cult if i leave now i won't have any friends and i'll have to buy all my apps again so i'm just gonna stay here basically to uh call back to its slightly earlier earlier sentence uh when i realized that i was using twitter too much is i sat down to pay to use twitter oh yeah 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 that wow i haven't done that yet i do find... i do sit down to pay sometimes anyway just yeah no i, I can i can get behind that it's uh it's easier Sometimes I just I can't be bothered. It's well, late you know, at night. Like you know, sometimes you're like, eh, yeah, it's just it's, you don't want to worry about aiming. 
You know, sometimes it, well, here's it, one. Do you know what's more fucked up? And I'm revealing something kind of personal about myself <laughs> now. So, yeah, it's one I'm worried about aiming. I'll be tired. But if you're really tired and you sit down on the toilet, here's something that can happen, ladies, that you don't... Uh, <laughs> uh, at, the end of, at the end of my piece goes between the uh, seat and the bowl. Yeah, yeah. And I sit down and I don't realize... And it's oh, pointed, no. and I, you piss between oh, it no. right into your pants. Oh. It's happened to me two or three times. Never in public. That'd be a game over. Oh my god! Does that ever happen to you? No. I, I'm, I'm probably sorry. Just I want the, it. I want it to have happened. I'm to probably me. at the exact length where that happens. So anyone out there, if that's happened to you, you know, you're probably the same length as me. I mean, it, it also might have to do with like if we're gonna talk about position. penises, like well, or whether you're cut or not. I don't know. We don't I, have to get into look, that if you don't want. I'm I'm not Jewish and I don't come from America, so you can figure it out. Well, I you know what's funny is like people always like okay, well my girlfriends always ask me this. I'm I'm Jewish and I'm uncut because like my family is not practicing. So people are always So you're like, like her women boy are toys. always surprised because like they'll usually find out I'm Jewish before we get busy and then they'll find out and they'll be like, "But I thought you were Jewish." And it's like, "Well, you know." Hmm. Okay. This this got well now okay. Uh, this is about every, as blue as we now can, everybody yeah. who I'm gonna I, I don't know if I can link to this podcast on Facebook now. I can <laughs> cut my, that out my, if you want. No, leave it in. All right. But, Shout out to uh, Jewish guys out there that yeah. still have their hood. Yeah. Mm. But no, I've never I've never peed through the the between. What about like? Oh, I guess that wouldn't happen when the seat is like the U, right? Mm, no, it doesn't. It doesn't happen Maybe then. Maybe that's one of why. those seats. I hate those seats. Oh, really? Yeah, oh. you see the little grundy bit of bowl. There yeah, that's true. It is. They encourage people to piss without lifting up the seat. Do they? Is that I think what, so. Is that what they're there? Like, why do they? Is it? Maybe I they're there it was because just somebody save materials thing. Like, I thought it was just because yeah. it's cheaper. Like, they can save like a couple bucks on every toilet seat, and if you're making that's 9, smart toilet seats, then. I never thought of it that way. Yeah, it's true. It's really mm, true. The bottom line that you piss through. Yeah. <laughs> what can you uh, tell me about the tale of Frosty Crickets? Oh, uh, Tales of Frost Cricket. Is... Oh, I was so close. Yes. Where yeah. did you? Oh, yeah. I just you're, you're not. You're the second Australian to say it that way. Oh, really? I, I work with a, a an Aussie, uh, Tom Van Kalken. He actually appeared on an episode of Podcast versus Podcast. So but, both um, both the Australians, you know, there with the band surname. Yeah. That's true, actually. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, no. I wish I had a van surname. That's so cool. Is yours all one word or is it the one separ- word? Okay. Because yeah. his is actually separated out. Yep. It's Van Kalkin. So, yeah. But, um, but yeah, he, uh, he said, because he recorded a couple of voices for it. And he was like, oh, Frosty Cricket. And I was like, that was weird. You guys both just said that. Maybe I should change it to that for the Australian Does it market. Does it sound like a, is there an Australian character that sounds like that? Maybe? Blinky Bill. I don't know. I don't know. You guys know about Blinky Bill here? No. I don't know about Blinky Bill. <laughs> He's a little, little koala, gets up to antics. Isn't it's kind like, of a Dennis and Menace koala. What's the name of that ice cream treat that is only in Australia that's like a dude or something? Buffalo Bill? Is that it? Buffalo Bill. Bill. Oh, yeah. That's not it. Buffalo yeah. Bill. Yeah. 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 Uh, so Buffalo Bill, the tagline there. Buffalo Bill. <laughs> Bubble Bill, would you blow me? That's what it's called. What? No, not no. really. I wish. That would be awesome. No, that there's was, that, that no connection. Great. It's okay. it's just it's it, the actual tagline is Bubble Bill, no connection. Is it? No. Oh, I don't think I, I don't think it has a tagline. Oh, that would be awesome if it if it did. I was never allowed them either because I was never allowed uh, gum. Growing That's up, what, is that a, like a thing in Australia? Because you're. Both I, I'm from England originally. Oh, are you? Yeah. 
That's weird. My mom, my mom is like a, I think it's a breath thing for her, but she was a chewing gum fanatic for the longest time. Like, and I think, well, my parents both, my parents both still smoke. They're in their sixties now and they've been smoking since they were teens. And, uh, and they smoked, my mom quits, says she quit smoking while she was pregnant with me and my brother. I don't know if that's a hundred percent true. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure we turned out okay. So whatever. But uh, she definitely started smoking like right after we were born. And I've seen them try and quit five or six times. Yeah, they and, didn't uh, quit. No, you know, they have not quit. My they mom told smoke. me the same lie. Well, they finally stopped smoking in the house because they have to sell their house now that they're retiring because they want a smaller house because yeah. it's too much well, that's work good to them. clean it. Uh, so so that was that's like a whole thing. But that's just really to sell the house. But it has made them cut down. So, yeah. But back to Frost Cricket. Yeah. Um, that's a podcast I came up with. I just, when I was, I've always been kind of obsessed with uh, folk tales and fairy tales and mythology. And I just, I started reading, I've always read them. Like, I think the, one of the first books I had as a kid was a, a book of Greek mythology. And I read that and was like, what the, what the fuck is this? Like, there's like people chopping off heads and like women exploding because they look at a god and he explodes them and like. There's like monsters with snakes for hair and Hercules like kills his best friend. Like it's, it was really, I think that really messed me up. So I, I read, I read a lot of those and then I, I started reading this web comic, Kill Six Billion Demons. It's a really great web comic. That's sort of like a a high fantasy, just a real, it's about a girl who gets sucked into this alternate world of like feuding Kings and stuff like that. But it's based a lot in uh, Hindu mythology. And, and he sort of writes all these posts. He, he has all this supplemental material that's like the mythology of the world. And so he, when he posts a comic, he'll post like one of these mythological stories from these like texts of this fake universe. And that sort of had given me the, gave me the idea of like these, I just started as an exercise writing these stories about this character called Frost Cricket, who's an old woman who was just like a paper pusher. And then one day she just got bored and quit her job and went to wander the world. And the stories about her, her wandering the world and running into all these, these crazy monsters and demons and, and spirits and stuff. And then sort of just like dealing with whatever happens with that. And I wrote three or four of these stories and I was like, wow, this would make a really good, like this would, this is actually something I could, I could like put out there and people might be interested in it. Cause my wife read a couple of the stories and she's like, these are pretty good. Which uh, when when my wife says that, <laughs> you know, so it's she's actually, a harsh critic. She's a harsh critic. She she won't. She hates reading scripts, so she'll only read my outlines for my scripts because she just. It's not that she doesn't. She just doesn't like reading the script format. She has trouble with it, but she's she's given me a lot of good notes over the years. Um, so anyway, I wrote three or four of these stories, and I was like, well, how can I do these? Because like I like I like the mythology thing of like you'll you'll find a story and you'll find either parts of it repeated in other stories like the sort of like you know you'll find repeated motifs or you'll find a, the same story but it'll have like slightly different details like you know in one there's like three tigers and the hero has to fight three tigers but then in another it's basically the same story but with dragons or with like three witches or something like that so I was like well how can I do this and I I was like oh, I'll do this as a comic I was like, but I don't like the idea of like this character. I've never described her because I like the idea of this mythology sort of like mythology evolves to fit whatever culture it's told in. And that's part of it is like, it's sort of a container to pass on values and, uh, and let people see their own culture reflected in a story. She's like a man with no name sort of character. 
She is. She has a name. It's Frost Cricket. And yep. she has defined characteristics, but I thought, well, it would be I cool. I just mean specifically like, like that character, the man. Yeah, the she's sort of like a mythic archetype. And uh, I was like... The, the, um, well, Mad Max little, little, is another one. Yeah, yeah, that's another one. So like, I was just like, well, I don't really... I don't want to have an official visual depiction of her because then it's sort of like locks her into being this one thing when really the point is she's sort of like a figure that's many things to many different people. I was like, well, okay, then what about audio? Because I, I think like the other cool thing about Dungeons and Dragons and stuff like that is like you can describe the way your character looks. And then, you know, I've worked with, I've played D&D with artists and they'll, two artists will draw the same character completely differently, right? Like it'll still be like have the same, like both of them have leather armor, but the armor is completely different and they might have a completely different haircut if you haven't described that in detail. So I was like, well, what if I did an audio podcast and then sort of let the the details sort of be filled in by whoever's listening. And that's kind of the point is that these stories to a certain extent aren't there's they they contradict each other and they they have all these th- similar motifs but they they are like there's different versions of the same story and uh that's it all sort of flowed out of that and it became a larger thing and I realized well the best way to do it is to make a podcast where I narrate these stories. And then I was like, well, if I narrate these stories and I have the characters talking, I should get voice actors in to do the characters while I narrate them. And it sort of snowballed into literally like a storytelling podcast where I'm the narrator and the writer, but I get other people in to do the voices of the characters, including Frost Cricket. And and in addition to that, Frost Cricket is never played by the same person in every episode like she's played by different people so it gives you that sense of she's not just this one a very distinct character she sort of changes and 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 shrinks and fits to fill the story and becomes a slightly different her archetype sort of fits the story that it's in at the moment and then I just because I read a lot of mythology and folklore I don't take an approach of like, oh, I'm going to do like, this is going to be like an Appalachian style folk story, or this is going to be like an Aesop's fable. But there's definitely that sort of element of like, oh, this is more of a smaller tale that gets told around a fire to children. Or like, this is like a poem that gets recited in like a town square or like a city, like in in front of other like poets or something like that. And that's sort of the basis of every story. Is that out yet? No, that'll be out in January. Um, I was originally going to release it in September, but because it became a much more, I thought originally I just, I just tell the stories out loud into a pod, into a mic and then edit it. But because I introduced other voices and sound effects, um, and I, 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 am glad I did that because it makes the podcast more what it is, is it allows me to add, add in different voices and sort of undercut the pretentiousness of it with comedy, especially like what I do is the, the narration is more serious and sort of like old world, like, high language elevated language and then the characters speak more like modern especially like a cut like i made i made a couple characters speak with like modern sort of so accents or dialects like there's a valley girl character in one like that valley girl kind of california accent um and it's just sort of like that's where a lot of the comedy comes from is there's sort of mingling of like sort of high elevated like mythology and epic folklore and then like dumb voices and 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 funny lines and stuff like that and so uh it just it took it expanded to a way bigger scope and i've edited two episodes now and i want to have like at least five or ten before i start releasing them so i have a buffer 
So I'm just, I pushed it back to January in order to get that all done. Yeah, it sounds like you need a buffer on that one. Yeah, it, it is. And I'm, I'm probably, only about one week ahead on this one, and I often wow. feel pretty, uh, pretty scant for time. Yeah. But it's getting, it's getting quicker. Yeah. I'm definitely looking forward to that one. Yeah, I am too. And uh, I'm, I'm always looking for uh, voices. Uh, for the characters so if you ever want to be in one of those i definitely do okay uh, I, I don't get to flex my uh my my voices very much on this podcast Ooh. but i do a lot of different voices yeah okay yeah. i can't wait to hear them uh so if you want to hear me do voices and you're listening to this in the future that is now the present for you yeah check go, out tales of frost cricket yeah listen to that maybe yeah. maybe you'll hear uh you won't even know it's you'll me hear a doug vandalay original yeah as we call them around the cave goblin network or basically just uh, just me being um, Littlefinger or something. Ooh, yeah. That's I can do Littlefinger. I can write a part for that. That's a fun one. So you worked with Shane McLean and friend of the show Piers Ray on a project called Jailhouse. Ah, yes, Jailhouse. Yes. We were just talking about that the other day. Yeah, that was for Comedy Coup, which was uh, one of those. It was a program done by CBC. It was sort of like a talent hunt. Um, and that was for a comedy series. Um, so that was like right around the time I got out of film school. It was after it was after no it was after film film school because it was after I stopped working PA gigs, but I started working at the the animation studio and Pierce came to me with this idea. At the time, he was kind of looking for a director, and I was I had finished film school and realized that what I really wanted to do was more write than do other things. Like I'm, I'm still interested in directing and producing. And uh, even performing, I think my main focus was starting to move into writing because that was when I was in film school, I would just be hating being on set like a lot of the time because the sets would be not fun. And then I'd have to do all the stuff that I didn't really want to do, especially when I was like the DP or like the production designer. It was just not fun. But then every time we got into a room and we were discussing scripts and, and editing scripts and stuff like that, I found I was really enjoying that. And Pierce had actually taken the writing program, so I was kind of hoping to get him to sort of mentor me a little more into writing because the the film production program in vancouver film school doesn't really do that so pierce came to me with this project he's like well what if you direct because you're a little more visual based than i am and then we sort of we can all co-write it and shane's gonna be the, the performer and they had a whole idea like it was a show about basically it was like a bachelor or like a big brother style reality show but all of the contestants were convicts and they were basically like playing for time off their sentence but if they did bad things, then they would get more time on their sentence, essentially. And they had like, you know, it was the same thing. All the comedians like Raquel Belmonte was going to be one of them. And we sort of we so we, we did a couple videos for that. And then what happened was the, the fourth video didn't upload properly. So we got disqualified because we didn't upload the video by the deadline. Uh, it happens. Yeah. And so that was the end of that. That was kind of the end of that. I think we were planning on doing more with it and then just like uh, Pierce started working at his, the, the Airbud thing. And then I started working, I moved into production and we sort of lost track of it, but it was really fun. Like we shot all them, all of them and Shane and Pierce were living together at the time. And uh, we just shot all the, all the, the videos that we did in their house and my house. And like, we involved a couple of other performers and my wife was going to do music for it. And that was really like the most fun I'd had shooting videos since film school when I, and I realized like what I really wanted to do was just make dumb videos with my friends. And that's really like, it sounds what, like that's what you went into film school to do. Yeah, absolutely. In the first place. And I think what happened was I went into film school, uh, feeling very insecure and not sure how much I would actually, I belonged there. 
And then first getting into film school, you see all these people who are like, oh, they love, you know, like uh, Gus Van Sant or like they love like Nicholas Winding Refn and all these like art house directors. And they talk about like, oh, this camera, like they know all the, the red and the area Alexa and they're comparing them. And you sort of feel intimidated. And then you get you get about like two months into the program and you realize that like, oh, these people don't know anything. They're just saying what they've heard online or what they've seen in like DVD extras. And, uh, and, and, and not that it's bad. It's just, they're, they're all sort of like, they're passionate, but like, it's, it's interesting to see how much sometimes you think someone, because they say the right words are more knowledgeable and then they really aren't. And then you sort of realize, oh wait, well, if they're not any more knowledgeable than me, then maybe I could be pretty good at this stuff if I just keep trying. And that's basically, so in, so it, it got to a point where it was like, I was frustrated and tired. And then we made those jailhouse videos. I was like, no, this is really good. This is really fun. I miss this. So that was a really fun point. I, I don't think we'd ever do that project again. Cause it kind of just, it was a, it was a really ambitious project. And we were basically the winner of that contest. They'd got a pilot for, they got like, they got, they got a pilot made for CBC, but I don't know if it ever saw the light of day. Cause I think the one that won was like a Dungeons and Dragons thing. It was about like, monsters that played a human version of dungeons and dragons in their like monster world that seems like it would run better as uh as like a far side single cell than an actual mm -hmm. whole show mm -hmm. like it's it's just it's just a little uh well i think the thing was that contest it was all about like it was all vote based yeah so it was just like whoever had the most friends yeah or an already well, so they would have made that con they presence. would have made that contest just to spread their social media yeah exactly yeah. so a lot of them were already created series too that had already existed and that was another part of it so i think we came away pretty like disheartened at doing that stuff but we we realized that we did really like making videos and i think we are pierce and i actually talked about we want to get we want to get something going again and start making web videos again so watch out for that too i don't know when for anyone on citr thanks so much for tuning in that's the end of our time slot but you can hear the full episode along with other podcasts on cavegoblins.com for anyone else, stick around. We've still got lots more to talk about with Joe. Woo! And before the show, I asked Joe about a comedic influence to talk about today, and he came back with Joel and Ethan Cohen. So what do the Cohen brothers mean to you? My parents would always, like, rent Cohen brothers movies and watch them, and I didn't... When they first started doing it, I didn't know they were... Like, the first one I watched was The Hudsucker Proxy, which is both a tribute to, like, a certain type of old, like, silent movies... Because they do a lot of that stuff, like a lot of their influences are are uh, pre-war movies, and um, so I watched. I remember watching the Hudsucker Proxy. And it's kind of one of the first movies I remember as a as a young child, and being like, "What the heck is this? Like, it's not just like the Lion King or whatever." And then, so they were always kind of around because my parents and my family were really into them. Um, and then I think I can't remember whether it was the Big Lebowski or Raising Arizona was the first one that I watched where someone told me, oh yeah, this is the directed by the Coen brothers. Um, and I just remember really liking them, like liking the absurdity of it. Uh, like my brother and I watched it, like my parents rented it uh, from like a, a, a video rental store. And then we watched it all together as a family. And then my brother and I actually watched it two or three times more before my parents took it back to the video store because we liked it. And our favorite line was... Um, when Maude shows uh, Lebowski the, the porn that is starring the, the wife that he's looking for. And she's like, it starts off in like a cable guy comes in to fix the cable and then has sex with them. 
but like she turns it off before they start having sex. She's like, you can imagine what happens after that. And he goes, he fixes the cable like as a joke. And like my brother and I just thought that was the funniest thing in the world. Like this idea, like, cause like you can tell he's being sarcastic, but it's just like such a weird line. And then the other thing too, is like those movies, like even the minor characters always seem so like real. Like there's the scene where, uh, Lebowski goes to um, Maud's house and David Thewlis's character is there and he's just like he's in it for one scene and he he he's he's just sort of there plot wise to sort of like heighten the the confusion and the irritation it's that sort you're of the, to the feel. chittering yeah he's like because he's like an artist it's like he I can't remember his name his character's name but basically like she just introduces him and he's but he he feels like you know exactly like who that guy is, mm. you know what his relationship to Maud is, and you know, and you know exact. You could picture him in like if he was in every other scene in the movie, you could picture what he'd be doing. So it's just like I always liked how strongly they approach even the smallest characters in their script, and I think that was just sort of it. Was like the comedy of it is not, it's not height. It's it's heightened, but in a very subtle way, and it's the, really playing up that absurdity. Yeah, and the sort of weirdness. Of noticing life. the the absurdity of mundane situations. Yeah, and I don't know if you know, like we again, like we studied them a lot in film school, and Roger Deakins talks about this when he does Coen Brothers films. He has a very specific way because the Coen Brothers like really wide lenses, like they like to include the environment even in their close ups. And what uh, Roger Deakins does is he puts these wide lenses that exaggerate a person's features too, like especially once you get close up, they sort of make them almost like caricatures. Is that, am I pronouncing that word right? I always yeah. pronounce that word. No, you wrong. got it right. I used to pronounce it caricature. Really? And people would be like super confused by that. No. Yeah, that's what a carrot catcher. And everyone was like, "What's a ca- what are you talking about a carrot catcher?" That sounds like a slur. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> that's a, a slur for Bugs Bunny. Yeah. Or rabbits. Like hey, carrot catcher. Here's a, here's a fun fact, but a trivia. You know why um, people think rabbits eat carrots? Why? Uh, because Bugs Bunny was the the first depiction of of rabbits being into carrots, and it's because Bugs Bunny is a parody of Groucho Marx, right? Oh, maybe I thought it, he was a parody of Bo- Humphrey Bogart. Humphrey Bogart, yeah, Bogey. 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 Oh, that's who he's supposed to be. A parody yeah, because he used to go around Hollywood chewing on carrots and saying "What's up, Doc?" to everyone for real. Yeah. Wow. Uh, so I've probably got that wrong. And look, no, I believe that. Let's just correct me. Interact with the show. God damn it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Come on guys. If you're annoyed about that, just tweet at me. Tell we, me what an idiot I that's, am. That's the thing is, is Doug actually wants you to, um, actually him. Yeah, please do. <laughs> he actually wants you to come in and say that. Yeah. And I won't even call you out on it. I'll say Be- behold, uh, the glory of my stupidity. Uh, I, I wanted to interject as well, but I felt bad because you, you had a really good answer to my first question there. I've realized, and this is a crazy coincidental tie-in, why I called your podcast The Tale of Frosty Crickets. Why? Because there is a, a new Coen Brothers uh, vehicle out called the Ballad of, of The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Yeah. And it has the same tempo to the title. That's right, it does. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's why. That makes it's, sense. It's in my... Uh, it's in my subconscious, and especially with thinking about the Coen Brothers leading up to this. Yeah, did you? Uh, How's did that you, for a callback? Yeah, that's great. Yeah, did you? Uh, did you actually watch Hail Caesar? I did. I loved it. I love it too. I watched. I've I've got thirty minutes left on it. I just got to the part where uh, the cowboy and then the um, you know the two stars start like the the cowboy. Is that Sebastian Stan playing him? No, it's Han Solo. 
Oh, Alden Ehrenreich, right? Yeah. yeah. So it's him. It took and me then forever to realize that. The, um, Carlotta Valdez. I can't remember the actress's name right now. Yeah, when they're um, when they're on a date after they go to his movie. So I'm I'm almost finished the movie. You know that uh, he's really doing that with the spaghetti. Is he? Yeah, it's not CGI or oh anything. He said it was the hardest part of the whole movie was I doing bet. the lasso. So tricks. did he do the actual lasso tricks? Like he in did. The... He did uh, gun training, quick draw. Uh, horse training. Wow, that's uh, all cool. that stuff. My the first thing I always do after every movie is just get into all the IMDb trivia and then search movie <laughs> my, name Reddit. My wife and I watch. Uh, we watch a lot of TV in bed because we have a computer monitor set up in our bedroom. And at night, like we'll be watching a show, and every episode, if there's like a lull or just like a break, if if like she gets up to do something, I'll just get on IMDb and look at all the trivia, and she gets super irritated with me because she doesn't want me to. Just be on my phone the whole time we're watching. I do the but exact I, same I have thing. to do it. It just like it makes it so much more interesting to me. Um, yeah, no, um, I really like Hail Caesar. Probably my favorite. I so I'm I'm gonna finish Hail Caesar tonight. I meant to finish it last night, and then I had to stay late at work to get some stuff done, and then I didn't finish the movie. So you know, but. I I thought it was a period piece about about Roman times. I didn't know it was a it was set in old timey Hollywood. Yeah, no, it is. It's um. That, that, that's one of my favorite period period uh pieces. Like, I love singing in the rain. Yeah, that's a really um, fun period too. And like the movies from it are are so iconic, and you can see why they they really did pay a really good tribute to them in a way, and also made it kind of funny too. So, it's um, weird thinking about nineteen twenties Hollywood when you watch a western from then, right? A really old western. Yeah, that's like thirty years ago for them. That's like the same. Right. Yeah, because it's like the 1890s or whatever. Yeah, so that's like Back to the Future for us as a period piece. <laughs> to that's real-time Old but West. Was Back to the Future a period piece when it came out? It was set no, in... No, but it's... Oh, a, but they go back to the 50s. That's right, yeah. But even the 80s, right? So oh, yeah. the 80s to us is like as far back, far back as the actual Wild West was to yeah. old-timey Hollywood. That's super weird to think about. That's very weird to think about, actually. I didn't think about that. It's always, it is always like the more that now I'm getting to that point where watching like old movies, like, like, you know, you watch, you watch a nineties movie and like in my head, I'm like, oh, nineties movie. That's not that old. But all those movies are 30 plus. When, uh, Lion King, for instance, came out, what was that? Like 95 or 94 or 95, I think. Yeah. So that was 23 years ago. Uh, So from that would be 1972. So from the time, so whatever came out then. You know, I, I wish I had some examples off the bat with that. I, it's funny, actually, you mentioned Lion King before as a, a movie to compare seeing these Coen Brothers films to. And you, you, you Lion said. Lion King was the first Disney movie I saw in theaters as a kid, basically. The, but my anecdote I have coming up is the exact uh, opposite of that. So I uh, spent some of my formative years, three years of my life as a child living in Malaysia, and I didn't know movie theaters existed. What? Because we never went to them. My When movies came out, my mom would just go to Chinatown and get us the, mm. the movie on VHS. And we got The Lion King. And because we didn't know about movie theaters, we never got trailers for anything. Even on TV in Malaysia, they pretended that the monorail episode of The Simpsons was the first episode. Because that's the first one they got when it came out. Oh, wow. And they called it Bart, Bart Simpson. Anyway. <laughs> like, tonight on Bart Simpson. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. But... We got The Lion King and we watched it and we were so into it, me and my brother and sister, that we cleared the top shelf of our VHS cab- cabinet, put everything on lower shelves and made a shrine to it. Oh my God, that's the, awesome. Because it was the best movie we'd ever seen. Yes. So we'd watch it every day, like put lion toys around it. 
That's I got. I got. Do you have a picture? I wish. Oh, you should no. see if you your your parents and would they have no. a picture? Oh, no, okay. uh, weren't that involved with us? Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> the, well. the, the the tragic tale. <laughs> that's that's for another podcast. That's for when maybe you, after I have my breakdown when, publicly. Yeah. Well, or when you get a guest to interview you, which is what you should be doing. Oh, like a special guest, like Lauren Lapkus. Yeah, or just a reverse episode. Because it wouldn't be Comedy Zeitgeist if I didn't bring up an Earwolf show. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> I don't think I actually listen to any Earwolf shows. Not regularly. What piece of literature would you most like to see adapted to screen by the Coen brothers? Well, that's a, I, you know what's funny is that's sort of like, I guess everyone says that they do, like, is this because they, is this just a general question? Like, I just like, thought of it. Okay. Because, like, everyone says that a lot of their films are, like, based on, like, The Odyssey or, like... Yeah, like, like a, the a Book Brother of Where Job and stuff like, The Odyssey. And then, like, A Serious Man is sort of the Book of Job, essentially. Um, Maybe that's why I thought of it. I think, honestly, you know what would be really cool? Um, there's a series that never got finished. Um, it's a book series called Gormenghast. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. I haven't. Um, it's... Uh, the author wrote it. He wrote it, I think, after World War II... It's basically a fantasy series about this, like, basically this this uh, castle that's sort of isolated, and um, all the 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 royal family that's been living inside of it um, is sort of super isolated and weird, and all the servants are really weird, and they're, they're getting older, and they haven't they haven't produced like a viable heir. Like, there's a teenage daughter, but because it's all like primogeniture, like they she can't inherit the throne, and so then they finally like this these the 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 king and queen finally have a baby boy and they're like, they're both like in the, they're both very like clearly over like in senior citizen territory at the point where they have this baby boy. So it's sort of like this miracle, but it's just more about all the weird interactions between all these characters. And like, there's a rivalry between the head Butler and the kid, the kid, the head of the kitchen. And they like, like a, a, a lethal rivalry, like, like they fight each other with weapons. And so this the the heir to this it's called the Earl the Earl of Grown, he's born and it sort of just changes everything. The book series follows him like the first book is all about him as a baby when one of the kitchen boys stages like a rebellion to try and and sort of like moves up in the castle ranks and becomes like uh, sort of like the queen's like servant while slowly building his own power. And it's just a super weird series that's more it's like it's called like a fantasy of manners or like a comedy of manners. Kind of thing where it's really it's sort so of a kind of like a gothic. Yeah, um, it's like it's like if Terry Pratchett wrote a gothic romance novel, essentially. So it's it's definitely very like like deliberately comedic, and there's a lot of like dumb wordplay, but not it's it's much it's much less. It's not Terry Pratchett really leans on the fourth wall, whereas this doesn't at all. Yeah, and each chapter sort of it it moves between viewpoints, like it's always third person, but it's sort of like. This chapter is sort of from the viewpoint of the dot, the oldest daughter. This chapter is from the viewpoint of like the head of the kitchen. And it's just all about the weird relationships that they have. And he wrote three of the books and then he died. And there were supposed to be six in the series. And basically it was all about this Titus, the, the young heir to the throne, growing up, leaving home and then coming back. And he only wrote the, up to the third book where Titus is out in the world, in the even crazier world than the castle. Anyway, they made a BBC adaptation where Jonathan Rhys Myers plays the bad guy. But I think the Coen brothers could really do that series justice, especially the first movie, which is really just about all these weird characters in the castle. So, yeah. It's interesting you said that because uh, for my pick, I also picked a sort of gothic 
thing. I think they do an amazing Dracula. Oh man, that would be really interesting. And like maybe with an angle of maybe Van Helsing's wrong and Dracula's not even a vampire at all. <laughs> He's just like a weird old dude who can't with like a sunlight allergy, basically. I just listened to the audiobook version and Tim Curry played Van Helsing. Oh, and I think he'd be perfect in. Didn't a he play film. Dracula? Though? No, that was Gary Oldman in the um, the. Uh, the, the Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula. Right. Which is probably one of the craziest movies of all time. When you were speaking about it just then, I thought another good thing they, they could do, because I, I was really excited for, but I've been told not to see Murder on the Orient Express. Oh, that's right. Because I've always yeah. wanted a good Poirot movie. The Coen brothers oh, would kill right. it with yeah, Poirot. Yeah, they would. They would. They would kill it's it. It's made for them. Movie. It really is. All right. So, uh, Ethan, I know you're listening. Hi, Ethan. Uh, get on that. Sorry, doesn't Joel's it, my favorite. Doesn't have to be on Murder on the Iron Express. Uh, it can be any other, any other Poirot yeah. uh, adventure. Let's do a better job. Yeah, do a better job. I'm sure. You Maybe have. you could have a framing device where Frances McDormand plays Agatha Christie. Oh, that would be good, actually. Yeah, crossover. She was great in Hell Caesar. As oh the yeah, yeah, she was the editor. Like, she didn't yeah, even have he, a line or anything. Yeah, she just like gets like her scarf gets caught in the machine. For for those who don't know, she's uh, married to uh help me out here joel. joel i'm pretty sure she's married to joel 50 50 yeah. you say joel i'll say you Ethan. one of us is right yeah. yeah we'll find that out internet tell us well actually you know what's funny speaking of editing you know that the coen brothers edit their own films under a pseudonym really yeah roderick james is the name of the the editor for all it's just them they just edit it together Hey, that's funny i've just put a list of the, their movies here well uh, I, I just listed all the ones of those i've seen Okay, what have you seen? Uh, Raising Arizona. Great movie. Great F- movie. Fargo. Fargo's great too. The Lady Killers. Oh, which the Lady Killers. Fell a little flatter than the other ones, but I watched it on a plane and loved it as a 15-year-old. I think that one, well, because that's actually, that's based on an, there's an old silent movie. That's their remake. It's There's uh, an older silent, no, it's not silent. It's not but silent. It's, like it's a, that, that famous comedian who also made the first ever James Bond movie. Who is it? The original Casino Royale and Woody Allen is in it. Right. Uh, is the first Bond not, movie, and he's in that. No, because Michael Caine, I'm thinking of In Like Flint, which is just a parody of James Bond, so not Michael Caine. The, is it Buster Keaton? It isn't. I don't know. I'm just. I'm, I'm doing this like Peter Sellers. Oh, it, Peter Sellers Peter is Sellers. the first Bond? Well, that's the, the funny thing. In the original Casino Royale, there's like 50 people play James Bond. What? Because it. it's a family this. reunion at, at the casino. <laughs> And so there's all these, and, and one of the James Bonds is Woody Allen, speak, oh, okay. speaking so, of abusers. Okay. That's but, weird. So, so yeah. yeah, he made the original Lady Killers. I've never seen that, actually. I actually just, I, I have, like, I've, I remember when I was in my early 20s, someone lent me a copy of The Party, which again is like, that's another one, that's Peter Sellers doing, like, blackface, essentially, with, like, he, because he, he's playing an Indian character, and that was like a huge, I guess he had a huge falling out with the, the Indian guy who he was friends with um i can't remember his name that that was based on oh well he based him he based a movie on his friend without telling him no he he i can't remember how but basically so there's a movie called the party and it's about like a really awkward guy that goes to this party and does just does all these really like very peter sellersy visual gags at this crazy house the character the character's name is rundi bakshi which I don't think is even like a proper indian name like bakshi i'm pretty sure is like an eastern european last name but i could i because Ralph Bakshi is like an animator guy. Right. But yeah, apparently that because Peter Sellers was friends with an, a famous Indian director 
who he kind of based the character on because this indie director was super awkward and stuff and they had a falling out over it because he wasn't he wasn't because i think originally they wanted to get an actual like indian actor to play the part but hollywood wouldn't let them so peter sellers did it yeah i can't remember that might not be the right story i might be totally lying that's a good story um, either way yeah so i i've seen the lady killers i think i think it works in a, in a, in a certain sense because they they stuck really closely to the original movie and i think they were trying to do kind of a riff on that but uh yeah i, I think that's the one that's sort of considered their like first like failure i i actually right? didn't know it was one of those until doing this research mm-hmm uh, my next one in the line uh, is The Big Lebowski, which was my favorite movie for the longest time. Yeah. It sent me to film school, which I think it did for nice. a lot of people. Yeah. That's uh, the one that always gets talked about too, right? And I think it's their most quotable film for yeah. sure with maybe like uh, A Serious Man coming second. I haven't actually watched that one. That's my favorite. That's my personal favorite because it is about, it's it's Jewish and it's just, it's like their most, you know, there's a joke that Coen Brothers movies are about nothing. And um, it's the most like absurd movie about nothing. Like, it, like it almost is like, it's almost playing on the fact that it's not really about anything. And there's no, there's absolutely no lesson to be learned, even though it kind of sets it up. I don't want to spoil too much if you haven't seen it, but it's, it's, you should watch it. It's one of their best movies. Kind of in another way, like American Psycho without going off on a tangent. <laughs> Directed by the same person who directed the first Twilight movie. Anyway. Right. Um, I know. What's the name? That's not Patty Jenkins, is it? I think it is. Okay. I'm gonna, let's All right. Let's Patty just say Jenkins. it is so that we don't get off on a tangent. Yeah. Next one. With retrospect, tied for my favorite of their, their movies, probably Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? I, okay. So that's Big Lebowski and Oh Brother, Where Art Thou are sort of their two like most recognized movies, right? Yeah. I would say so. And what you were talking about before with the the wide lenses and the caricatures, yeah. George Clooney was made for that. Oh, absolutely. His face is so expressive. He's... Inhale Caesar, that that shot when he's, all the shots when he's actually in the movie are just so funny. Yeah, yeah, no, and that's um. He's such an expressive actor. Yeah, and that whole like I remember, I think, Oh Brother Where Art Thou is probably one that I sort of I think I have a bit of hype aversion to because it's sort of everyone's favorite. And I think I've seen it multiple times. Like, don't get me wrong. I love that movie, but I think I get like, same with the big Lebowski. Like I'm, I, I love those movies, but I find when I talk about the Coen brothers, people always want to talk about those ones. Yeah. And I'm more interested in their other movies too. Like again, serious man is my favorite. And I really, I've been, I love hail Caesar. Probably my favorite, like one of theirs that's more dramatic is Miller's crossing. I think that's a really underrated movie. I'm going to have to add it to my list. I've also been meaning to watch Barton Fink because I've seen bits of it here and there. I've, I don't think I've actually watched that's like the Fink. That's the noir detective one, I think. Yeah, and that one's the one that... So I think that was the one that sort of established them because they did Blood Simple. And I think Barton Fink comes before... It comes after... It's like Blood Simple, Miller's Crossing, then Barton Fink, then Raising Arizona. Raising Arizona is Nick Cage's second best performance. What's his best performance? Mandy. Have you seen it? I still haven't seen it. It is so good. Oh my God. Best movie of 2018. I think it's still playing at the park, so I'm going to have to go see Uh, it. We rented it on Google Play. Oh, nice. Yeah. Okay. I'd love to see it in theaters because I saw- Yeah, I wish we had, but- I saw his previous feature, Beyond the Black Rainbow, in theaters, which is just like, that movie is made for theaters. Like, it's good. You should watch it, but- But, uh, yeah- it's got I, some real Yodorowsky vibes. Oh yeah, for sure. If we're yeah, gonna be he's, film he's nerds a big on this, on Yodorowsky. Um, but we keep getting off on tangents. True Grit. 
True Grit. I I still haven't I finished. Love True Grit. I still I keep it's it's not it's I've it's not that it's bad. I think I need to be in a very specific mood to watch that movie. I've watched half of it two or three times. I was in a really steep spiral of depression. I mean a specific one, not like you know when you talk about your times of depression when it'd be like a few weeks or months or yeah, something. It yeah. was a night where it just like got really bad. Yeah. And I was trying yeah. to distract myself with anything and I put true grit on it and it just completely like pulled me into it. And I forgot that I was depressed for that for that time and that was really good. I think that that was always to me, Haley Steinfeld is so good in that movie. Like it's creepy when child actors are so good. Yeah, and that's the thing. It's like I think People sort of thought that's kind of, you know, when when a, someone is so good that you sort of people th- assign think like that's kind of who they are, and and like that's an extreme case. Like people obviously didn't think Haley Steinfeld was like this old west teenager, but I think a lot of people didn't know what to do with her after that. Like she didn't, she didn't, she she kind of did that, and then there wasn't another big thing for her. But she's like, I, I maybe it's like maybe when you I'm start just, a new job. Um, and you, you work too hard in your first week. Yeah. And then that's expected of you for the rest yeah. of it. Uh, what I really like about that movie is the period language. Mm-hmm. In it, it doesn't sound forced at all, but they don't use contractions yeah. ever, which you, you don't hear that often in, in Westerns. I'm a big spaghetti Western fan. Yeah, and how much... And it's not like... I th- I haven't seen the original True Grit, Grit but the it's not like that at all, right? In terms I of haven't the language, seen it. So. The, it's the only movie where both the original and the remake have won Academy Awards. Oh, nice. Okay, yeah. Uh, it's the John Wayne version, the original. But uh, you know, it's it's the dude on a horse with an eye patch. Yeah, exactly. I'm gonna I'm gonna watch that one. Is that on Netflix still? Uh, I don't think so because I wanted yeah. to watch it last week and prep. I'll probably for this. just buy it on Blu-ray. I'll go home and buy it on Blu-ray off Amazon. Burn after reading. Oh, that it's funny. So when my wife and I first started dating, uh, we have my wife is uh from a very conservative Catholic just, family. Just real quick, Talia hasn't seen it, so don't give away what the machine is. Okay, yeah, I won't give anything away, but. So that was my wife's first. You, you know what I'm talking about if you've seen it. Yes, I do. Everyone who did. <laughs> that is, that's pro. And that's another one that people are really divided on. I love it. I think like that and A Serious Man are the two Coen Brothers movies where normies will walk away being like, what the fuck was that? Yeah. And they got to use John Malkovich. Yeah. And John Malkovich was amazing. And Brad Pitt. His and, memoirs. Was in that too. His <laughs> memoir. Just the ending of that movie where it's just like when J.K. Simmons character comes in and. Yeah, and does yeah. the thing that he does. Does the th- uh, so, but yeah, that was my wife's first ever Coen Brothers movie. Really? And at the time, she I like so we had like a, a bad boy good girl thing going on, but she was trying to impress me and pretend she was like much more like rebellious than she actually was. So I think she like totally like just turned her brain off through that whole movie and was like, yeah, it was really good. And to this day, she doesn't remember a single thing about that movie. But I know we watched it together. I know we watched it together. And then suddenly she buys you like a TIG welder and... Yeah, and, just, and a <laughs> bunch of like equipment and like starts showing me ads for things. Oh. Yeah. So I, my note here is I've written Brad Pitt eating and I want to talk about something that's... Uh, oh! Okay. I want to talk about something that... This isn't a spoiler. So... Have you seen a Brad Pitt movie? Then you'll know what we're talking. I think, yeah, because... This is a, a, a pet theory of mine. It's a joke about Brad Pitt eating in every fucking movie he's but in, right? I think he does. 
Like, I, I can't think of a single movie where you don't see at least one scene. Where I think he really likes scene. doing it. And I have a problem with it because I am, I'm one of those people that gets really annoyed at people eating loudly and, like, people clanging dishes and stuff. And I honestly think a lot of people do it because they see Brad Pitt do it in movies. Like, why did... He's, like, in a... I can't think of the movie. I think it's Ocean's 12. He's cutting up some food and pushing it all around his plate... It's because I think he thinks he doesn't know what to do with his hands in that scene. And people will cut up all of their food while chewing. So you don't need to fucking just cut no, off the I bit that you want to eat. So when I was PAing, we would, because what we'd do is when lunch came or dinner came, we'd go get our food and then we'd have to go back to our station because we'd just be watching a pile of cables or something, right? So what we figured out was if it's like a steak or like something that you have to cut up, you might not have a, t- a, so- a hard surface to cut it on. So you pre-cut everything before you go back to your spot. Right. So that, that always just like, that's funny for well, me. Well, that's, that's like, a... But that makes sense. That's a reason, right? The only other reason I can think of, my brother was born without his left hand. Oh, wow. And so my parents would cut up all of his food before he ate it and regurgitate it to him like a baby bird. Wow. No, I wish. Anyway. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you keep getting me. The Brad Pitt dance bit in that movie is amazing. Just I that weird look. He's Ocean's twelve. No, sorry, in uh, Burn After Reading. Oh, when yeah, he just yeah, does yeah. that dance out of nowhere. I send that gif. I send that gif to everybody. I always wonder if that's like in the stage directions yeah, at all, yeah. or if he was just being a, a crazy guy. Well, I sent it because I'm I'm canvassing for Cope a couple times a week during the upcoming election. Everybody vote in the upcoming. Well, it'll be after, right? Yeah, but okay, cut that out. But if you're a time traveler. Yeah, um, go back in time and kill Ronald. But Reagan. I've been canvassing for Cope, and I, uh, the the organizer who keeps, like he he texted me. Oh, uh, he was like, "Oh, are you coming out on Thursday?" I, was I like, get yeah. emails to them, and I can't vote. Well, that's right. Yeah, they they don't care. They're yeah. very like they're cool. That you should if if you I they like are Cope. trying to get that one of their platforms is getting the vote for permanent residents. Yeah. So cool. Talk Someone talk them up to your coworkers. Too. All right, I gotta get on getting my permanent residency. Um, and they'll still let you canvas for them. So I, t- I, he was like, oh, are you coming out on Thursday? I was like, yeah. He was, and I sent him that gift to be like, oh, I'm excited. And he's like, we should, someone with skills should edit the rent, the cope rent freeze now t-shirt onto that. And we should put it on all the, all the, like the campaign materials. I was like, that's a good idea. It's pretty easy with, uh, after effects. We'll get to it, man. Uh, I'll, 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 there's a guy, there's a guy at my work, the self-imposed intern. For just so people know, it. like Doug was looking me in the eyes. And when I said, get to it, man, he just, I looked, looked down at my notes, looked away. <laughs> All right. Maybe I'll do it. Maybe I'll do it. We'll see. No, whatever. Somebody do that. Somebody put Cope's logo on Brad Pitt dancing and burn after reading. So next one I got is no country for old men. Yeah. And that, that's the, the most, probably one of the darkest yeah, you know what's interesting, though, is the more times I watch that movie, the more I find a lot of humor in it. And I think, like, that's the thing about the Coen brothers is their sense of humor, because it's absurd and it is very, like, their sense of humor is actually very dark. Like, especially, like, when you watch, like, Fargo or A Serious Man. So it's funny how much, um, con- like, if the tone of the rest of the movie was slightly different, that those scenes would be, at, like, the whole scene where he flips the coin for the gas station attendant. That scene could easily be in Raising Arizona if you just tweaked it a little bit. It's, what makes it chilling is Javier Bardem. Oh, yeah, for sure. And he's super creepy. But, like, you, the other guy in that scene, it, like, clearly could, like, like because he's so normal, but also, and also kind of, like, incredulous, like, that scene could easily have been a completely comedic scene. It's kind of interesting. Hmm. And uh, it's interesting because if you watch the Coen brothers' commentary for that, 
they talk about how the reason that scene works is because they think that 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 actor he's been in a lot of Coen Brothers movies. He always plays small parts. They think he's one of the they're like he's one of the best actors in the world, and that's the reason that scene works because he's react. Everything is that whole scene is about his reactions to Javier Bardem. And they said, like, in the hands of a lesser actor, that scene would just be nothing, right? Because it's Look just up who, like, who that guy is. Yeah, let's do it. I'll see his face and work backwards. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I know that guy. He's, he's that guy. He's one of those that guys. He's totally one of those that guys. And I, I've forgotten the name of him, but the guy who... The, I think the Gene ultimate... Gene Jones. Gene Jones. Yeah. All right, shout oh, out to Gene Jones. he was in The Jones. Hateful Eight, too. Weird. Weird as hell. And I think that's all of the ones I've seen. So you haven't seen? Oh man, yeah, you gotta watch a series. So what? What haven't you seen? Well, everything I, that I didn't list. So a what haven't man. I seen? Probably more than I have. They've got they've got such but a long. Back have you, so have you seen the Hudsucker Proxy? I haven't. That's a we- that's a weird one because it's like it's specifically a tribute to a certain type of old. I don't I don't think it's a silent movie, but it's like an older type of movie, um, and it's a basically about a, an ad exec in the twenties that invents the hula hoop. Oh, that sounds fun. And it's super, it's very, deli- it's, it's Hail Caesar, you know how Hail Caesar has that, like they make it look like a period piece, like yep. for all the shots that are in the movies, that, in, the whole movie for the Hudsucker Proxy is like that. And what's interesting is Tim Robbins is the, the lead in that movie. And it even has the famous like Buster Keaton, you know, he, he hanging off the clock like yep. that, 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 that is parodied so much. Like they actually do that in that movie. So it's really good. Yeah, you should watch the Hudsucker Proxy. I'm probably gonna watch most of these. Yeah, it's funny because when you to- when I told you the Coen Brothers and you were like, "Oh, I better watch Hail Caesar," I was like, "Yeah, I'm gonna I'll binge Coen Brothers movies all week and every day of the week." I was like, "Yeah, I'll watch it tomorrow. I'll watch it tomorrow." And then all of a sudden, I was like, "Holy shit, it's Monday and I haven't watched a Coen Brothers movie all week." I only watched Hail Caesar. I tried to watch True Grit again to show Talia, uh, and it wasn't on Netflix, so yeah. I gave up. And I wanted to watch Raising Arizona. As well. Oh, so you haven't seen Raising Arizona? I have seen it, oh, okay. but I wanted to watch it again. It's have been, you seen been uh, Blood? So you haven't seen Blood Simple either? No. Blood Simple is that weird one, like because it's a mostly dramatic movie. Like it is, like because it's a, it's a thriller. It's probably my least favorite movie too, but it's it's really good. And movie I, of this. Yeah, and that was one of the first ones that they did too. Like you can see, like I guess like there's a scene in the beginning where um, the camera the, it's because it's the main the main location in the movie is like a, a bar in Texas. And there's a, a scene where the camera basically above the bar sort of like crawl like crawls down the bar, like facing it's parallel to the bar and it's rolling down. And there's like a drunk with his head down and he's just like lying on the bar and the camera actually lifts up over him to like as like a bit of a thing and i guess all they did for that shot because they had no money for that movie they basically just took two two by fours and put the camera on it and like had two like grips like like carry it down the bar as smoothly as possible so and it's and it's such a smooth shot compared to um like what you'd expect from two boards instead of a dolly so and that's actually the other did you notice in hail caesar uh how much the camera shook whenever it was moving no, I didn't. Because that's the thing. If you watch older movies when there's moving shots, especially like indie movies and stuff, because those cameras were so heavy that it didn't like, and they didn't have like all the crazy dollies that we do now. So they'd just be on like tires or something, right? And in a lot of older movies, when the camera's moving, you can see the shake very subtly, especially if you watch it on a large screen. And I think the Coen brothers actually added that on purpose in Hail Caesar. That's my theory. 
so what else are you working on right now? Anything you want to plug? Well, there's my podcast and my webcomic. Well, what, what are those for uh, people who have been listening this whole so time and forgotten? My webcomic is Blue Skies Over Nine Isles. It's like a post, post-apocalyptic adventure, like sort of like Indiana Jones or Firefly, but with our own twist to it. And uh, that's it. You can check that out at blueskiescomic.com. Then there's the the podcast I'm I'm doing, Tales of Frost Cricket. That'll come out in January. And actually, if you're into zines and comic and indie comics, Hugh Henderson, the artist of Blue Skies and I, will be tabling at Canzine, which is a big uh, zine fair and sort of like indie literature show. And that's happening at the SFU Woodward Building on um, 149 West Hastings. Uh, it says Gold Corp Center for the Arts, but I thought it was the SFU building. Anyway, that'll be Sunday, November 4th. All right, cool. Well, thanks so much for coming, Joe. Thanks for having me. That was a, that was a fun one. Yeah. Uh, that was Joseph Stilwell talking about the Coen brothers. Join me next week when I talk to Sam Tonning about Dennis Miller. I'm Doug Vandelay, and you've been listening to Comedy Zeitgeist. You can follow the show on Twitter at Comedy Zeitgeist and me at Doug Vandelay. Make sure to check out Everything Economics, also on the Cape Goblins Network. You can find that anywhere you found this. If you enjoyed the show, don't forget to share, and please rate and review on iTunes. It's the best way you can help out the show for free. See you all next time.